0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Greetings. This is Mark Niefer, a host on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Bruce Wardaw about his new book, Competition Law in Crisis, The Antitrust Response to Economic Shocks. Bruce Wardaw is professor of competition law at Durham University. He also has practiced law in Canada. He's written extensively on the competition issues surrounding collusion and cooperation in markets. Competition Law in Crisis, his 2022, 2022 monograph examines the response of competition law in the EU and UK to a number of economic shocks that have occurred since the last half of the 20th century. Welcome to the show, Bruce.
0: Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure
1: to be here, Mark. First, can you tell us a bit about your book, how you came to write it and its main thesis? Yeah. It, I My book um,
0: addresses uh, the problems that uh, competition... Lawyers, competition agencies, and, uh, and and the like, policymakers um, have found in terms in, in times of economic crisis, typically there is a, a view uh, by members of the agency, uh, likely exacerbated by political wins saying that they must they need to do something to help resolve these crises. Uh, or at least certainly not stand in the way of a resolution. In addition to this, there's, of course, calls from industry um, to say that, well, hey, wait a minute, we as industry, we, we have solutions. We can help out. Please let us help out. Uh, and you know, one way of, of us helping out is if you relax the, the restrictions that we have on um on, on, on our conduct uh allow us to collaborate to de- to develop uh mutually acceptive collaborative responses uh to dealing with shortages to dealing with um problems in 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 the banking system for instance uh but if you step back and look at this is uh, and this is what I attempt to do in my book uh you notice that there are or there are of problems associated with this, which I attempt to address in my book, um, and, and we'll get into these problems later, but in effect, a collaborative response really won't help to solve these uh, these solutions. Now, how did I come to write it? Well, this book is very much a, um, a COVID lockdown baby. Um, I uh, in autumn of 2019 i was thinking about my i just published a bo- another book and i was thinking about my next project at that time there was a lot of work writing initial writing about uh, sustainability in the environment and collaboration collaborative responses uh, to the environment so i thought okay well let's let's start thinking about this and and and, and reading uh uh Autumn twenty nineteen turns into Christmas twenty nineteen, turns into January of twenty twenty. We start seeing the COVID virus coming to us from um points east. Um uh and actually as it turned out, I, I, I was at a uh reception by put on by one of the um academic law um Associations in 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 the UK, the Society of Legal Scholars, an annual event, and there I met a um, uh, an acquisitions editor that I'd worked with before. Proposed to her an idea about uh, a book on sustainability, the environment, and collaboration. She thought that was a good idea. Literally, that was the last time that people were allowed to travel uh, because within approximately a week. The country, uh, at least the United Kingdom, had shut down, and we were put in a form of, as um, uh, so you could call it, house arrest. Uh, some people, uh, uh, a form of, um, of, of stay at home, uh, and it's pretty. And then, you know, obviously, reading the newspapers, we saw these calls. So my my thinking and focus shifted, and after a few months, I, I, I then approached uh, via email this acquisitions editor suggested Jessica. A change of focus. Uh, she thought it was a good idea, and then that led to a uh, book proposal. Well, actually, it led to my writing, and then a book proposal, and then uh, and lo and behold, it's amazing what you can do when you can't leave the house and um, you and you don't watch television. So, so that's that's so, that that that's how it how it
1: arose. So the COVID crisis both. Prompted you to write the book and actually facilitated the writing of the book by locking you in your house for several months. Apparently,
0: the, the COVID crisis and 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 uh, I must say my 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 wife's good humor and and uh, ability to tolerate me just sitting at the table writing for uh, hours on end. So.
1: so- For our listeners who may not be familiar with competition law, can you give them a little background on competition law and the more economic approach to competition law in the EU, which you write about in your book?
0: Okay. Competition law is uh, what the rest of the world refers to, what the Americans call antitrust law. Uh, Essentially, competition law looks at the problems associated with monopolies. And monopoly-like uh, behavior in in the marketplace, and serves to uh, regulate or, if not eliminate that. Uh, monopolies tend to be a uh, tend to be viewed as bad because, as a monopolist, they the uh, monopolists have great market power, and using this market power, or the measure of the market power, is their ability to raise prices given that, uh, by definition, there's no um, comparable substitute for a monopolist product. Essentially, what the monopolist wants to charge, the monopolist gets subject, of course, to um, uh, uh, consumer elasticity of consumer demand. Um, Now, uh, monopolies aren't the only, how should we say, um, concern of competition law. We also look at... um, uh, for instance, uh, collusion among um, firms that are supposed to be competing. Uh, colluding firms engage in sort of price fixing or market division type activities, uh, and in fact, they operate as as divisions of a of a monopolist. Uh, so, uh, if you have a a group of firms that, um, let's say, in Europe, would. Um, um, Carve up the market on a geographic basis. <laughs> wow. Excuse me, Mark. You have um, for instance, a firm uh giving itself and its or its competitor a monopoly in Germany, another one in France, a further one in, in Italy. And and so the these firms are acting as, in effect, um uh, uh sort of local divisions of a sole monopolist. Okay. And Given that they're acting as monopolists within these markets, they can charge whatever prices they can get away with to the detriment of the consumer. The other aspect that we look at in, in, in competition laws, of course, merger control. We're worried about firms merging together, jo- joining together uh, to become dominant or have a monopoly or a quasi monopoly and to use that, uh, that power in the market to, uh, to raise prices uh, to the detriment of the consumer. Now, you know, know, so that's that's what competition law looks at, but but also competition law recognizes that not all cooperation is bad. Uh, We um, there are in fact uh, good forms of of cooperation. Um, Industry wide cooperation to set industry wide standards uh, is very important. Uh, Take for instance um, mobile phones uh cell phones uh, to use the american term north american term uh, a cell phone uh requires certain standards uh uh you know bluetooth standards standards for uh using uh what mp3 mp4 standards for sending pictures uh without these uh without shared or common standards uh you you couldn't use a samsung with a um, with a competing brand, with an Apple, let's say, um, if if Apple chose one one form of communication and uh, and Samsung another, there's currently a controversy about the iMessenger, but that's that that's a different a different sort. Um, research research and development. There are complementary um, uh, complementarities in uh, in in firms' knowledge and firms' uh, ability to to engage in research. We saw this in COVID. Um, for instance, um, if we look at all the uh, the vaccines, the Western vaccines that were produced, and by Western I mean not the, the Chinese Sinovac or the Russian Sputnik, but with the exception of the Johnson and Johnson vaccines, all the other vaccines were uh, a result of cooperation between uh, two or more. Firms that um, uh, that had complementary expertise, and uh, through this cooperation, uh, we developed a series or a number of very um, uh, very important tools uh, to to um, uh, to combat uh, the the COVID virus. So this is what competition law does. It looks at the what what was economists call the market failures associated with. uh, with monopolies trying to sort out, uh, in in effect, uh, good monopolies from uh, or good good collaboration from bad uh, monopolistic behavior. Now I talk about uh, the EU. This is uh, my my book is, as you rightly point out, Mark, um very much oriented towards and uh, the EU law. Um, uh and, and the so-called more economic approach. Now the the EU's, how should we say, um history of antitrust laws is 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 somewhat different. Um the Americans uh the American response was what, 1890 with the Sherman Act, a year behind the Canadian response, uh as I'm gonna plug that. Um but the, the the what we first saw in in Europe uh, was a, a post Second World War development. We uh, in 1951, the Treaty of Paris, which set up the European Coal and Steel Community. Uh, that uh, that that was an effort to integrate really the economies of uh, Belgium, France, um, to a certain extent, the Netherlands and Germany. Because if you had interlinked economies, you were less likely to have wars uh, between you. And to to link up the coal and steel industries is is, is sort of the bedrock of these economies at the time. Uh, That treaty had uh, some competition provisions, uh, provisions uh, prohibiting um, uh, collusion and 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 monopolistic conduct. And these uh, these provisions later became entrenched in the uh, Treaty of Paris. Uh, sorry, the yeah the Treaty of Rome. Sorry, in 1957, which led to the um, uh, the foundation of the European Economic Community, which later became European Community, European Union. Um, and those treaty provisions still survive today in, in almost uh, unchanged, well, in unchanged form. Uh, the what's changed is not the treaty, not the words of the treaty themselves, but how the treaty has been understood by competition authorities and by the um, by the European Court of Justice, um, uh, which uh, is the ultimate uh, arbiter of, uh, of 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 European Union law. The early view of what the treaty's purpose is, and 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 this includes, of course, uh, competition law was uh, was was one of market integration. Was to make a sort of a level playing field throughout the European uh, project, whether it was the Economic Community, the Community, or the Union, to ensure that competitive conditions in one part of the um, of the European um, continent were identical uh, as much or as close to identical as possible with competitive conditions in the other uh, in in other parts so in other words to you know to to use that off quoted metaphor of a of a level playing field so that german companies wouldn't have an advantage over french companies or or, uh, or italian companies and vice versa uh so and Competition law was originally interpreted as sort of facilitating uh this level playing field. Uh and then uh for about the first, I would say the first well eight eight to ten years of um of, of litigation. Uh and uh, and once the uh how should we say once market integration had been seen to be sort of semi-realized or were almost completed, uh, there was also an idea, uh, again, reflected uh, in the jurisprudence that um, the competition law could be used to promote certain social or economic and social policies. So, we saw relaxation of competition goals when things such as um, we had industrial crises, uh, such as uh, problems in the... um, in the 80s and and, and early 90s, uh, in 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 industries, for instance, when the synthetic fiber um, industries started falling apart in uh, because of lack of demand in 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 the 80s, and then in, in the 90s we had a similar problem with a lack of demand in in the Dutch uh, brick industry, and uh, sort of the competition was. I guess one way of putting it would be that it was uh, sort of viewed as a, s- a secondary to these these social goods, our social goals. Um, now the problem was with looking at the at the competition from the social goals is that in many respects the agencies, or in particular the European Commission. That's responsible for the enforcement of uh, competition rules in Europe uh, lost track of the economics and, uh, of uh, surrounding certain issues, and this led to a number of embarrassing problems. The main problem is is that it put Europe as a bit of an outlier, or at least compared with the Americans. Uh, and the strong economic focus used by the American authorities, for instance, in assessing mergers. Um, Now, what's the problem there? Well, in a merger of uh, I shouldn't say, of course, but in a merger, every jurisdiction affected by the merger has a say in whether that merger should go through. So if for instance you had a large merger and it affected both say the American and the European market, if the Americans approved the merger because from an economics perspective it wasn't um it wasn't problematic, but the Europeans blocked it uh and arguably blocked it on the grounds of of bad economics, now you have a problem. The deal collapses. And it looks like a bit of European protectionism. So that's going to uh, really send uh, cross-Atlantic shockwaves or or a firestorm. That happened in the in, in McDonnell-Douglas merger, for instance. Then, of course, if you have a merger that is rejected by the... Even within Europe, it has no, say, transatlantic consequences. But if it's rejected within in Europe, again on the grounds of bad economics, you have the parties to the merger wondering what went wrong, and appealing this matter to the to the courts, and the courts having sort of a better perspective on the economics, perhaps through uh, later economic expert evidence, uh, and if that occurs, it's a bit embarrassing when the courts tell you that your economics is really bad. And that happened uh, in about th- in, in three cases, in uh, around just at the end of the 90s, beginning of the, the 21st century. And so this led to the European merger authorities to realize, oh, wait a minute, we better up our, our economics cane. Uh, and in effect, to join the uh, the rest of the world, or at least the the big players in the rest of the world, or the biggest the biggest other player in the rest of the world, the Americans, and look at uh, look at the economics much more seriously, and and take economic uh, considerations into account, and what the um uh, and, and as a result, uh, after about 2000, 2000 and uh, and three the uh, the Europeans developed a, a more economic approach. Um, the more economic approach really involves two, um, two, two strands. The first strand is only economic consequences, such as consumer welfare matters, and that secondly, the tools of orthodox price theory, with maybe a little bit of game theory thrown in. Are the uh, appropriate tools to measure this? Now the adding to all of this was uh, was uh, what happened in May of 2004. Um, in May of 2004, the uh, European Union went from 15 members to 25 members. Okay, that's a lot of extra um, um, uh, businesses to look after look after prior to um the uh, prior to um may of 2024 uh if businesses wish to engage in collaborative um uh, conduct uh, they could apply to the european commission and have their agreements vetted by the european commission and the commission would say yes or no uh the problem was that to vet these agreements, it was a fairly lengthy process, sometimes taking uh, 18 months to two years. Uh, Of course, uh, given during the process of the vetting, there was a standstill, 18 months to two years can be a long time in a market economy, and so the market conditions could change. So, that was problematic. Furthermore, from going from uh, 15 to 25 members you now have a situation where, in addition to the already uh, backlog uh, of work, you had a um, significant, uh, uh, how should we say, uh, potential for a lot more work. So the European approach to antitrust scrutiny went from a commission assessment uh, to a self-assessment process. So that the undertakings involved, undertaking is just Euro speak for firms, um, so the firms involved would would have to self assess to determine whether their proposed course of action uh, was consistent with the uh, um, with the competition uh, rules, and to to do so, in effect, you would need to sort of simplify. Uh, uh, you know, while the commission might have a, a huge house of, say, institutional knowledge and uh, repository of what counted as so appropriate social goals, et cetera, uh, you couldn't uh, really depend on, um, on undertakings to have the same A, knowledge, and B, objectivity in applying this knowledge. So, you could strip it down and say what really matters is consumer welfare. This can be measured through... Uh, by and by, economists and 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 through their means, and therefore using using this elegant tool or simple tool, as other people may wish to say, uh, you can assess for yourself whether the uh, agreement is beneficial. So there's a number of factors pushing to to this more economic approach uh, right. in in the. Um, uh, in, in the competition community and uh, of course uh it's not without its um detractors um uh it, it was a bit controversial it remains a bit controversial it's still present it's still very much an element of um of the uh of, of the European uh way of, of looking at, at things so with you know so it was with this background that I um I I tended to look at these crises in in the book.
1: So even though you're focused primarily on EU law, given the sort of convergence between the U.S. and the Europeans on many issues of of competition law, it seems like your book actually would be quite applicable, uh, quite useful to policymakers in the U.S. as well Uh, as the rest of the world.
0: Yes, exactly. It's it's very much uh, 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 applicable to the U.S. I mean, uh, you know, the consumer welfare you know, paradigm the the and Trinko, et cetera, in 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 in, uh, in, in the U.S. Um, uh, we it's applicable to Canada. There are some certain Canadian differences, and uh, you know, over the last year and a bit, I've had an opportunity to. Do, to present this work to uh, around the world and uh, in Asia and South America. and you know sure there are certain differences. you know Indonesian competition law will, will protect um, uh, smaller businesses uh, 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 but uh, but consumer welfare is very much on say the Indonesian competition authorities um, uh, minds when they're evaluating um, uh, such things. So are Thailand. Similarly, similarly in and in, 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 in Brazil have uh, discussed this so yes i, I think it does have um, it, it does have uh, a, a broader approach than than their europe and and, and the uh, and the uk i mean the problems are the same i mean we have cartels cartels are bad irrespective of whether they occur in indonesia thailand brazil uh, in, in in the Quebec gas stations in Canada, or in uh, or, or 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 in the, the UK or or, or or the EU, um, uh, merging to monopoly or, or quasi-monopoly situations is bad. It's bad for consumers. Uh, it's bad for small business. Um, so, irrespective of the of the, of the fine, um, how should we say the the, the fine differences the core is uh, the core is really the same.
1: So, so uh, the notion of market failures seems to play an important role in your work. I yeah. wonder if you could explain to our listeners what you mean by market failures and how they affect your analysis of competition law in times of crisis.
0: Okay. Um a market failure, okay, let's let's go back to what a market is. Essentially a market is, I mean, let's we can go back to this the wonderful vision that Adam Smith has of markets, which is on the whole accurate. You have a, a, a group of people acting in their sort of almost enlightened self interest, or at least in their self interest, uh, engaged in voluntary exchanges. And this tends to yield a situation where uh, an optimal amount of goods, an optimal meaning no underproduction, no overproduction amount of goods or services, is produced. Um, And you know, given this, I think it's fair to say that markets are an excellent, if not the best, way of allocating goods and services. Um, uh, Unfortunately, at times, you know, the 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 market of the textbook economist uh, is, is 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 imperfectly realized at times in 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 real life. Uh, there are situations where, I guess, pursuit of um, of our own self-interest uh, may not lead to the optimal uh, distribution, production, allocation of goods that the textbook would like us to believe it. And these are are situations uh, that that economists call um, uh, market failures. Now there are a number of these. I mean, one one such market failure surrounds public goods goods which uh essentially are not excludable free to use um I'm saying uh the, the the classic examples are lighthouses and um and and defense um I would um uh you know you can't exclude uh, somebody who refuses to pay their tax from the benefits of uh of, of, of being protected by the military, for instance. Um, uh, other um, situations are, are where you might have information asymmetries, where one party to an exchange possesses greater information than another and uh, trades on that and uses that information in in the fairness of exchange. A third are externalities. Um, externalities are, you know, the, the again the the classic example of a negative externality is pollution. Uh, if um, if a good is produced, uh, and as part of the production of the good, uh, pollution uh, pollution is created. This pollution is emitted into the atmosphere. The Pollution obviously has a cost, but that cost isn't factored into the uh, cost of the good. So as a result, more of the more of the good uh, the good is produced at a uh, at a cheaper price than it would have been had that uh, the cost of the pollution been factored into it. And as a result, more of the good is produced than is uh, uh, socially optimal and the final problem is is monopoly problems or not a final problem but a, a, another problem is is monopoly problems and the monopoly problems um uh associate with the in effect the the market power that um monopolists have the ability of a monopolist to uh to raise prices uh, to 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 be a a, a price setter rather than a in a, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a market uh, now competition law deals really well in fact the goal of competition is to address the market failure associated with uh, monopoly problems um competition law may not deal in fact I would suggest doesn't deal well with the other three market failures that I uh, I um I look at. Now the the real problem is if competition law is viewed as going outside of this domain of this um, of trying to address more problems than in effect it was designed for, we get uh, we get a very odd or a very distorted view of what competition law a should what a competition law should do and B. What um, uh, uh, what competition inf- agencies ought to be doing? Uh, you know, should competition? You know, if 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 the competition agency is restricted to dealing with situations of market failure occasioned by monopolies, ought they get to be dealing with the market failure caused by externalities? Perhaps uh, getting into an environmental issues. Are they to be um, dealing with um, market failures occasioned by asymmetric or imperfect information, thereby adopting, as some competition agencies do, adopting a uh, consumer protection hat? Um, but uh, but my, my view is that we we have a tool, competition law, uh, and and a tool that's fine that's. Designed for a certain task, and the problem is that once you start using a tool for tasks outside the task for which it was designed, you get problems. And 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 you know, there's there's a there's the old adage uh, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, to a competition lawyer, it may well be that let's expand the domain of of of, of what competition problems are because it you know well we can actually find a competition problem in there. Yes, you might be able to find a competition problem in there, but it's buried what a larger problem that's perhaps addressed by or better addressed by other on um, other tools.
1: Yeah, one of the things I really liked about your book was the use of market failures um, and a consideration of what competition law really is intended to do, as a way of helping to define the appropriate response of competition law to the various crises you address, uh, and. I would like to focus on a couple of the crises you discuss in your book, and perhaps we can start with the COVID-19 crisis, which played a critical role in your writing writing the book. Uh, and you discuss the COVID-19 crisis in Chapter 5. Uh, you begin your discussion by making some key observations about shifts in supply and demand. Um, can you tell us about those shifts and their consequences for competition law po- and policy in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis?
0: Well, I mean, it was clear we had, you know, shifts of... of, of... Shifts in demand, a sort of asymmetrical shifts in supply and demand. We had, um, for instance, competition law. At least here, we were, um, um, uh, you know, there was all, I mean, immediately a demand for uh, things such as surgical masks, um, immediate th- things such as uh, uh, alcohol hand gels. Um, so there's an increased demand for that, limited supply. Uh, existing um we know that when demand goes up supply remains the same or drops prices go up so we had uh, price shocks i mean that's just a, a simple truth of microeconomics uh we also had um you know in, in the uk uh we couldn't move. uh in the during the, the first so called lockdown we could only leave our home for uh, an hour a day um it was wasn't really enforced where I was living, but uh, what was enforced was the demands of writing a book. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, and, and we of course closed down uh, hospitality. So there was a drop in demand for hospitality, a drop in demand in of course um, uh travel, uh, um, whether the travel was uh, for work or pleasure. Uh, and, of course, if there's a drop in demand for a certain good or services, those who are producing the good and services now have no um, uh, no job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, uh, uh, how do we get, uh, get money to them becomes a, a government concern. Um, now, uh, with these sort of drops of, of supply and demand, we we started seeing uh, a couple of other um, other issues uh we saw first of all um uh, i guess um, calls from various industries to facilitate coordination um for some bizarre reason uh, globally uh, certain things flew off the shelves of the supermarkets toilet paper um Ah, uh, pasta, rice. I can see pasta and rice as a good, long-lasting staple. But toilet paper—that was just—I think, uh, an, uh, literally, an internet virus that, that affected everybody's uh, mode of thinking. But anyway, the, the fact remained uh, there was a, a, a shortage of 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 of, of certain goods. Um, and we saw in the UK uh, the grocery industry getting together and saying, "Hey." That you know, give us an exemption. We can work together. We can ensure that supply chains are are, are well maintained. That we can get these goods onto the grocery shelves. That we can talk as as members of the grocery industry. We can talk with the manufacturers of toilet paper to get toilet paper out there uh, to, to to those that that, that need it uh, or want it. Um, um, so. We had those calls. They were successful in the UK. The um, the grocery industry actually got an exemption from the uh, from the competition laws. Um, they were supposed to document uh, what they uh, what they talked about, but uh, the minutes of those meetings were very thin. Um, if you look at them, you know we talked, and that was it. Was basically what was minuted. Um, one wonders how. Uh, one wonders, and, and, and I speculate in my book. Um, first of all, if the industry is collaborating on reducing the number of products, I mean, at one time I think there were something like twenty-seven or thirty-seven different uh, brands and varieties of toilet paper on the uh, on the UK market. They would bring it down to a more manageable five or six brands. But you ask yourselves, what sort of interests do the do these companies have? Are they going to, you know, what what is their criteria for narrowing down this window? Is it the best, the most comfortable, or the most profitable? Uh, the cynic in me says it's the latter. Um, I think the cynic in everybody says the latter. the The other problem with facilitating coordination is we already know there's there's been a lot of how um, should we enforcement activities in the grocery industry in in the UK. We know it's already. Existing, uh, it, it, there is a fair amount of collaboration, uh, most of which is not legal uh, in the grocery industry. Uh, now they've relearned their bad habits in COVID. How much of this is going to carry forward? It's it's really hard to unlearn something that the um, government has allowed you to do. So that's you know that's that's the first uh, first response in COVID to to these asymmetric uh, market shocks. Uh, attempting to rein in excessive prices. Wow, we got um, you know you saw the two things that the you know a number of things went up. Uh, surgical masks they went up. Um, hand gel, the the price on that sword and you know Amazon even in the stores it was uh, you could see some what people might regard as profiteering response to increased demand would be the other way of putting it. You ask yourself. Um, okay, that's a normal market response. Um, what, what, what uh, Competition agencies, though, they, they tend to deal with not necessarily the prices, but the market conditions that allow for um, prices to, uh, to increase. In other words, uh, the erection of, of barriers to entry. Um, you know, typically, if, if prices go up, other companies, other individuals see this as an opportunity to go into the market and bring new goods in and compete the prices down. Um, hand gels, very interesting issue. Okay. Um, I think I talked to earlier about going down to this, this reception um, in London. Uh, I was in a taxi heading to the train station. And this was as, you know, just as COVID was coming in, people wash your hands, use these hand gels. Now, we had um, I was listening to one of these god-awful talk radio shows uh, that, uh, that the cab driver had on, and it was a representative from the hand gel industry talking about the hand gels okay and now the hand gel industry has every incentive to ensure that it and only its products are being sold that people didn't like pharmacists didn't manufacture hand gels that would allow uh, competing their price down so uh this this uh somebody the 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 interviewer was was suggesting, well, can't people make their own hand gel? For instance, take some um, 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 methyl alcohol, isopropyl alcohol, mix it with aloe vera skin cream, and 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 use that as a uh, as a form of a way of disinfecting your hand. And the response was, no, no, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Well, why not? Well, apparently, according to this. Um, industry representative, it was because the molecule size of isopropanol alcohol was much greater than the molecule size of the molecules of ethanol alcohol found in the hand gels. and the molecules wouldn't fit well into the pores of the hands and therefore wouldn't be able to kill the viruses. Now, I'm a lawyer, uh, I know, but I, I have a liberal arts background. I know a bit about molecule size, and I know about virus size. I know what she's telling is completely false. What she's trying to do is trying to erect artificial barriers to prevent people from doing this, uh, and therefore prevent pharmacists or for other people from from creating a, a a perfectly, not perfectly reputable, but what a solution that in fact was recommended by the WHO for um, a, a lower income countries so uh so I mean so it's 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 tearing down these sorts of Market uh, market barriers that are that are um uh that, that are appropriate the job for the uh competition authorities the failing firm defense okay uh what's a failing firm defense this is a a defense in um in merger control where, if a company uh, where an otherwise non-competitive merger would be approved by competition authorities, if, um, uh, if the firm that was about to exit the market, if their assets would inevitably be transferred to the other firm. That defense is, uh, is allowed, is, is, is a perfectly uh, legitimate defense. In, um uh, in European uh, merger control issues um what was the uh the but the in in the covid situation the um the calls by uh, merging entities to relax the view to relax the the otherwise strict criteria of the failing firm defense to allow uh, otherwise um Non-competitive mergers to be waived through the merger process to save jobs or something like that. I argue that that's a bit, that that that's a mistake. Okay, the, the problem is uh, these mergers would have been or um, prohibited. They're prohibited because they're anti-competitive. They're anti-competitive in the face of a crisis. All crises resolve themselves eventually. Or at least all of these at least. To this date, all of these economic crises have resolved, have these, these, uh, have resolved themselves. And the problem, though, is, is that the merged entity survives the end of the crisis. So if if you were to relax um, merger control, you have a, a non-competitive or a, uh entity that um, uh still existing and 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 inflicting its um, anti-competitive effects after the merger um state aid uh was another response state aid is a form of subsidy um given to it's used a lot in in, in the US uh and it's just, well, the inflation reduction act is a, a clear example of that uh state aid is something that Europe frowns upon it's part of the old um level playing field that I spoke of a few minutes ago. And the idea there is to to ensure that, for instance, the French government doesn't give a lot of money to the to its automobile industry to make its cars cheaper and thereby hurt the German or the Italian automobile industry. You know, just as an example. Uh, but in in a in, in crises situations, um uh, or in, in a lot of situations, state aid is permissible in in the EU to to uh, in, in cases where there's a European crisis or whether there's uh, severe disruptions to the economy. Now, uh, I think it was the first um, the first grant of state aid was was a Danish grant to essentially get money to people who were um organizing uh that's right music festivals and that occurred within approximately uh, I think that was about the middle uh, about the twenty first twenty second of March so it was it was very early in 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 this uh, production process now if Above a certain threshold, and the threshold's not that big; it's about two hundred thousand euros. Uh, state aid has to be approved by the European Commission, uh, and the European Commission was was quite good about this. Um, uh, in fact, they were able to approve most of these um, most of these uh, these grants within a short period of time. Uh, 48 hours, overnight, even, and, and and during the weekend, it was a lesson that they learned from the financial crisis, when they literally had teams in Brussels working overnight, so that some some documents would come in at, at, at the end of uh, end of business uh, uh, on a Wednesday, and the the approval would be there on the Thursday morning, um, uh, and, and and it was a similar process. So so state aid in in this sense was used to in effect, get money to those that whose income or, or 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 stream of stream of money was lost as a result of a drop in demand. Obviously, if you have COVID, you're canceling your music festivals, um, and therefore those people relying on music festivals as a source of income would be without income. And uh, it, it was a uh, in this case a national government decision to get money into their hands. So, uh, and, and I think on, uh, in this regard, the um, European Commission uh, was quite admirable in, in their way of approving it. I'm not a big fan of state aid, but uh, in, in these circumstances, I think it was the, the, the lesser of the various evils uh, that, that were open.
1: So maybe just to summarize your views, um, it sounds like you were somewhat concerned about um, facilitating coordination unnecessarily among firms during the crisis. It sounds like a focus on reining in excessive prices really is not in the domain of competition authorities and instead they should be focusing on reducing barriers to entry. Yeah. Um, it sounds like with respect to the failing firm defense there, you also seem to believe that uh, it's unwise to loosen those strictions on the very strict defense. And then, last, with respect to state aid, uh, well, your your view on state aid is 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 what? It sounds like you're skeptical of the use of state aid in these situations, or or uh, just need to recognize that it's not necessarily a competition response.
0: This is not as this is in in many respects, it's a welfare response. At least it was it was addressed as, as a form of of, of public support of, of of governmental support for for people. Uh, and, and when it was, but it was but but it was ch- really channeled through um uh the the firms involved so you the, the um uh and uh, so i'm i'm you know i, I don't I, I don't like i don't like seeing large amount of government money being sub- being used to subsidize um uh players in the economy um uh, I, I think the 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 phrase that was uh, uh, is, is corporate welfare. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of corporate welfare, but um, in 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 the banking in the financial crisis of 2008 and in, and in COVID, I see very little little other palatable alternatives. Um, you can't, have, you know, the, the other alternative would be to just pull the plug and watch people starve. Uh, and that's um, that's a bit in, uh, in inhumane, um, uh, to put it mildly.
1: <laughs> so, you mentioned the financial crisis of 2008 a couple of times, and we, we talked a little bit about state aid. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit... One policy we haven't really talked about is merger policy. And I wonder oh. if you could talk about the use of merger policy. Uh, during the financial crisis. And uh, in particular, of course, financial institutions were were failing left and right. And so there were pressures, I think, put on competition authorities to maybe facilitate mergers that might shore up banks, um, might help recapitalize banks or help them otherwise uh, survive uh, the financial crisis. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Merger policy in the context of the 2008 financial crisis.
0: Yeah, the merger policy, and yeah, I mean that—that's precisely what happened in—in—in in, in the UK. Um, you know, the the first response of the government. You know, we we had a problem with the financial crisis. That essentially we had two issues: we had a liquidity and a um, capitalization problems. Uh, banks first needed needed cash. You can give them access to cash so long as it was secured uh, appropriately secured. The other uh, aspect was undercapitalization, so you had to get money into the to, into the banks. Now, people wonder what's 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 the problem. Well, the the problem with undercapitalization is banks need a capital reserve to perform their functions, and among other and what they need to do is they need you know their their function in the economy is really to finance. They're the oil that grinds the um, uh, grinds the engine of trade. Uh, yeah, you know, in, in, a, in a commercial law program, it's about buying, selling, financing, and transporting goods, and you need banks as intermediaries in the in the financial process. If banks are undercapitalized, their money goes back into replenishing their their capital, and it's and 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 therefore doesn't go into the the uh, the real economy as it's often put. And in other words, it's not lent out to people to finance trade. So no, no trade. Businesses, big or small, can't get hold of money. Economy ceases. Uh, governments realized this and injected capital into banks. Um, but the problem is, there—at least in the UK—there was a lot of political pressure. Why are we giving money to these damn bankers who caused the problem in the first place? So, after headline after headline. Politicians start getting a bit anxious and look for other ways of stabilizing or getting money into the banks that doesn't look like uh, they're giving taxpayers money to these awful bankers. Um, One such way in the UK was through merger uh, policy. And that was to take a bank that was in trouble and merge it with the... um, uh, a merger with a um, a bank that wasn't in trouble and in my book I talk about one such uh, one such merger the um uh, H-Boss, um, um uh, merger and thanks Bank of Scotland and Lloyd's now, the idea was that if you could merge these two banks together, the assets of the good bank would balance off the assets of the bad bank. You wouldn't need uh, government to shovel more money at it. The newspapers and thus the people would be happy. Um, now, the the problem was that this merger uh, was anti-competitive. Okay, all mergers had to be looked at. It involved. Uh, it would inv- it not only would involve it wouldn't in- yeah it, it involved uh, the anti-competitive nature would manifest its um, itself in the um, in effect reduction of banking services to a large large parts of Scotland okay uh, a non insignificant part of the um, uh, of the United Kingdom. Um, now, the competition authorities quickly examined the merger. Fortunately, they had data from previous um, investigations that they could rely, and soon, within a, I think it was about a week, uh, was able to determine that this this was not this was not a good idea from a competition perspective. Uh, and uh, on that basis, was uh, they were going to um, we're going to block the merger. The UK government in its wisdom decided to literally change the merger rules overnight. Literally overnight to allow uh, the government to wave through mergers that were in the interest of the stability of the British banking system. And this was deemed to be in the interest of the stability of the, of the banking system. The merger was approved. A uh, number of things arose out of this. Uh, first of all, the um, uh, while while the merger did result in the capitalization uh, of, of an undercapitalized business, uh, it wasn't good enough, uh, and in fact, uh, it, um, later on, the government had to pour uh, billions of pounds into the capitalization. So, as a means of escaping. Further state aid or subsidies to the banking industry—it was ineffective. Then, as I said before about merger and COVID, uh, you know, this was the lesson of the merger. Here is the, the financial crisis resolved itself, but the problem is the merger didn't resolve itself. Um, the there is a, still a shortage of, of uh, and, and still a, a weak banking market in Scotland. Uh, people have uh, little choice uh, as to where, where, or with whom they can bank, and and service uh, the banking services uh, have diminished, and particularly in a uh, in an area that's that's more rural than than most of the uh, the rest of the uh, 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 you know it's just far more rural than say a large city and and uh, in, uh, in in England or, or or large cities in 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 Scotland, so. You know um, the merger solutions; they they may look appealing, yeah, in in times of crisis, but they leave long-term consequences. Similar merger happened in, um, in the Netherlands, and that had a an effect on the reduction of banking competition in the banking industry. And uh, those that did the survey also noticed that. Um, not only uh, as a result of this competition in the uh, banking industry, um, the rates paid on savings account went down, and the main users of savings accounts for a lot of their wealth are the um, people, you know, the the, the 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 struggling people who have less, you know, don't have their money invested in in equities or, or bonds, but rather put it in a savings account, and they're, they're so. Uh, so there are clear distributional consequences uh, to to that. Um, so my my view on merger policy: it was a mistake to, uh, and it was a mistake with s- significant consequences to uh, to uh, to loosen up our restrictions on merger.
1: So we've talked about the COVID nineteen crisis, the financial crisis of two thousand eight. It seems like one of the lessons you take away from a, a review of those crises is that they eventually resolve themselves and perhaps in short-run concerns about competition, uh, um, or rather short-run concerns about non-competition goals might sort of crowd out concerns about competition and, uh, or competition goal, rather competition goals might... Uh, might be uh, unduly emphasized during those short-run crises when they ultimately resolve themselves. Yes, yes. Uh, So uh, a longer-term crisis that many competition authorities are considering now has to do with environmental sustainability and and climate change. Uh, In Chapter 7 of your book, you talk about the climate climate crisis and about the appropriate role of competition policy. Uh, Can you give us your thoughts on the role of competition policy in achieving sustainability goals and in Combating climate change.
0: Um, yeah, I've, you know, I have a number of thoughts here. Uh, the first thought is that competition competition is directed at the market failures due to externalities. Sorry, due to monopoly problems. A lot of what we see with the environment and and sustainability is market failure due to externalities. Maybe we're using the wrong tool in a lot of cases. Um, taxation, maybe you know, a more appropriate way. Uh, perhaps uh to to uh, um there, there may be um, limited uh uh means for um encouraging recycling uh to to recent, at least uh, at least in the uk where it's fairly non-existent um but i'm not sure that competition uh, is 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 the be all and the end all now, the real problem, though, is that, and, and this gets back to, to where competition can help, is that, um, as I said earlier on, competition law looks at good competition and bad competition, or good, sorry, good collaboration and bad collaboration. Bad collaboration, price fixing, et cetera. Good collaboration, standardization, perhaps certain sorts of... Um, uh, what we call efficiency-enhancing uh, agreements. Uh, the real problem, at least in the EU, is that the the line is uh, often a bit gray, uh, and the um, uh, there's a f- uh, very legitimate fear that a company uh, that's or companies that step on the wrong side of the line. Might um, might be fined, and European fines can be quite quite large. Uh, just talk to Microsoft, Apple, so on, Google. Uh, in fact, Google's contribution exceeds probably some of the smaller member states. Um, so it's it's, uh, it's 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 not a uh, not an insignificant problem, um, and. It's also clear that there are a lot of, um, there's a fair amount of willingness in industry of of various sorts to work together to achieve some of the, uh, to achieve some of these sustainability goals, but to do so in a way that doesn't violate uh, the competition rules. Now the real problem is, given self-assessment, given the uncertainties and the legitimate fear of fines, um, it may well be the case that, uh, uh, in fact, it is the case that uh, a lot of uh, good initiatives aren't considered and certainly not implemented. And in fact, in my book, I cite some uh, some studies uh, by um, some law firms uh, of uh, some surveys of their clients who have um, avoided uh, entering into or implementing uh, these sorts of, of goals. And the, the real concern there is, or the, 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 the real way around this is for the competition agencies to, to engage um, uh, to a greater extent with their um, stakeholders, with industries, uh, to have clearer guidance. And in cases, and in, in, in novel cases, to perhaps issue um, uh, comfort letters by saying, we've examined your proposed agreement, we don't see a problem with it, we're not going to prosecute you, we think it's legal and we're not going to prosecute you on on this basis. Um, We're now seeing some results of this in the summer of 2003. the, um, The European Commission published new horizontal guidelines with a fairly extensive section 10 or 12 pages on sustainability concerns. Dutch Competition Authority and the UK Competition Authorities have also published their own sustainability guidelines. Um, The part of what the European Commission has also done is said said that they would be more willing to issue comfort letters. Very interesting. They've always been able to, since the the new self-assessment process, issue comfort letters uh but they never they 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 didn't until the covid crisis where they issued a um a comfort letter to the uh, generic pharmaceutical manufacturers uh, uh Association in in Europe saying that collaboration to get certain medicines out uh, will, you know under, under the circumstances we're not going to um we're not going to take enforcement action but also recognize that the the, the benefits that this might have uh for uh for novel agreements uh within industries. What what specific industries is still a bit vague. So, so it sounds
1: sounds like, like, oh, I'm sorry,
0: yeah, I didn't I, mean to interrupt. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to step on you either. Uh it was uh no it's just um uh I think this is uh this is where competition agencies should go to 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 facilitate um um uh sort of the the industries themselves coming up with a uh, and, a, and it's,
1: it sounds like transparency and guidance is a, a big part of the role that competition agencies can play in this crisis engagement engagement with everybody yeah. engagement yeah. all right so i think we're out of time here bruce i just want to thank you very much for taking the time uh, this concludes our discussion today. Uh, again, thank you, and thanks for telling us about your new book, Competition, Law, in Times of Crisis. This is Mark Nefer of the New Books Network. Uh, thank you all for listening.